Revelation 16. So I've endeavored as we've gone through the first two renditions of the drama of the ages, as been told to us in the book of Revelation, to point to the reality of what is being said through the symbolic and anthropomorphic language that is used. That symbolic and anthropomorphic language can be like the tall weeds that grow along the water hazards on a golf course. When you golf, the point of the game is to stay on the green and keep and get, then get to ball, your ball into the hole. The weeds are there, but you want to stay out of them or you're going to lose your ball. And if I've not done a good job in revealing the reality of what is being said to us in Revelation, if I've not done a good job of keeping us out of the weeds of the symbolic language, if I have allowed us to focus in on the symbolism and not the reality that is the intended meaning of that symbolism, then we're surely going to get lost in the weeds of the symbolism of this last telling of the drama of the ages. This last telling of the drama of the ages cranks up the anthropomorphic language. It uses symbolism to a greater degree than the first two times that the drama was told. And for this reason, I'm going to spend some time on making sure that we stay out of the weeds of the symbolism and remain on course. We must remember Revelation 1.1, the stated intent and purpose for this book. The reason for this is simple. The meaning and the point of the book of Revelation matches the meaning and point of the life of the saint. Hear me on this again. The meaning and the point of the book of Revelation matches the meaning and the point of the life of the saint. They're both all about Jesus Christ. This book is not an end times book. This book is not about a physical nation or an ethnic people. This book is not even about the church. And our lives are not about the events or the things that we accomplish or do in them. God is sovereign over both of them. And it is Him and Him alone that they are supposed to reflect, that they are supposed to point to and glorify. And everything that is told to us in our chapter from today, this is all real. And this is all happening now. It has been happening since the moment that Adam sinned. What is being told to us is the wrath of God on people, specifically on the economic and political system that is present in the world. God is pouring out His wrath at the same time that He's pouring out His love. Two of His attributes, both being poured out at the same time on two separate people groups, love on the elect, wrath on the sinners. And this is the dichotomy that is God. And this reality is the weeds that many Christians get lost in. And this is the point of showing us the drama of the ages three times in the book of Revelation. Because this is very hard for humans to fathom. Because in verse 1 we are told, Then I heard a loud voice from the sanctuary saying to the seven angels, Go, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And we are given this verse, told of this event in this manner, in order for our minds to be able to comprehend, at least to some point, the reality of what is happening. What has happened? And who is doing it? And why it is being done? You see, outside of God using anthropomorphic language, we would never be able to understand the unfathomable 
to any degree. We'll talk about that flannel gram that God has given us to explain and reveal the meaning of the plagues of the chapter of chapter 16 in a minute. But first, we must settle once and for all this conundrum of what is being said to us in chapter 16. We are told in verses 2 through 4, So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became loathsome and malignant sores on the people who have the mark of the beast and who worship his image. In verse 2, we're told something that any human that is a reasonable thinker has to read and understand that what is being said here can only happen in one of two ways. The first is that every human that has ever been redeemed can no longer be on the planet. Either true Christianity has ended and God has not kept his promise that the gate of hell will not, will not prevail over his church, or he has raptured them and what is left on the planet are merely the dregs of society. That's option one. And the second option is much harder for a vast majority of modern evangelicals to wrap their minds and their theology around. That all of what is being told to us is spiritual and not physical. But the wrath of God is presently being poured out on the unregenerate. And if that is the case, then the wrath of God being poured out on Christ in our stead should then make a difference for the redeemed in Christ. Now. Because this is actually how we are to understand these plagues. All of what is being told to us in chapter 16, we walk alongside of those that the wrath of God is being poured out on at this moment. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. I want to give you an example, merely one of many that, that explain the reality of what chapter 16 of Revelation is telling us, and at the same time, the dichotomy of God in how he treats people. 2 Peter 2 starts in the distant past. He says there, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. In verse 1 there, Peter there is pointing to the same flannel gram that the Lord uses to explain our chapter today. The purchasing of a specific people group. When he demonstrated his divine nature and the dichotomy of God in destroying the single world power of that day, Egypt, while protecting another people group that lived among and within Egypt, the Hebrews. They are the ones that he bought. And it's in this group that Peter says, is, is saying that false prophets arose from them. The same thing was happening in his day, in the first century church. And Peter then begins to explain the dichotomy of God for us in verses 2-14. through 14. He says, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with their false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into the pit, and delivered them to chains of darkness, being kept for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, 
with seven others when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who go after the flesh in its corrupt lust and despise authority. It's verses 9 and 10 that are especially relevant for us to think through. The other verses are given as examples of the dichotomy of God, how he can and has poured out his wrath on people while preserving and protecting his chosen elect ones from that wrath. But it's verses 9 and 10 that we need to think through in light of the wrath of God being poured out on sinners in our midst now and how he is keeping us from trials. The spiritual reality of the wrath of God being poured out on the earth dwellers, as they are called in the book of Revelation, begins to be revealed to us in verse 9 by what they value and how they act. They disobey God and obey their master and go after its flesh and its corrupt lust and they despise authority. And the authority that is being spoken of there is not primarily speaking of earthly authority, but of real authority, the authority that comes from the Lord. So listen to the rest of 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10-14, through 14, in light of our verses from today. And, we, and as we read through them, as you hear me read them to you, as you read them to yourselves, think about how they are described, those that are under the wrath of God. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they blaspheme glorious ones. Whereas angels who are greater in strength and in power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, blaspheming where they will have no knowledge, will, in the destruction of those creatures, also be destroyed suffering unrighteousness as the wages of their unrighteousness, considering it a pleasure to revel in the daytime, their stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and unceasing sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, they are accursed children." as they feast with you. That has given us here to allow us to understand that there are those that remained under the wrath of God in our midst. And it is their value system, what they live for, what they love that proves whose they are. And we are meant to understand that all that have been read to all that has been read to us concerning the bold judgments, they're being poured out on sinners. At this moment, as we walk alongside of them, as we work alongside of them, as we live next to them, and sometimes even as we live in the same houses that they do. Another section of Scripture to prove that this is the case is John chapter 17, verses 14 and 18. There we are told, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. 
I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. For they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. In those verses, we are meant to, as we read what is said in this chapter, chapter 16 of Revelation, we are meant to view ourselves, the citizens of heaven, as, and understand that Christ is pouring out his wrath on those that hate him and remain under his judgment. And then think, what difference does my salvation actually make in my life compared to theirs? We, according to John, according to that John verse, according to Christ, we are sent by God just as Christ was. We are meant to have his values, his mindset. And here, we're meant to have them here, now, as we walk among those that are under his wrath. And for this reason, as, <clears throat> as we must ask ourselves two questions here. The first is this. How influenced by the world and the worldly system are we? Better asked, what difference is there between us and them concerning the political and economic system? Or, how has your salvation made you any different than those that are not saved? And the second question ties in with the first. Since God is doing this, since God is the one that is Lord over all that happens in our life, especially our lives, we who claim to be redeemed, do we understand that complaining is blasphemy? So two more sections of Scripture to clear away the weeds of trying to make this chapter and the wrath of God physical and not spiritual. Listen to Romans 1, 17 and 18 to hear how the dichotomy of God for those that are of Christ, how this is made manifest in a world that is under his wrath. For in it, Romans 1 begins, verse 17, for in it, and the it that is being spoken of here is the gospel that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That's verse 17. And there, there is where that distinct line is drawn in the sand by God concerning those that are His and those that are not. They are His, bought for Him, through Him, for a specific purchase, which is stated in the last part of that verse, which is the will of God for all saints. The righteous... And that's speaking of all saints, not just some, not just the zealous or the on-fire Christians, but all saints. The righteous will live by faith. And then we're told the other half of the dichotomy of God. The reality of the world that we spend our lives in, as told to us in verse 18 of, of Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So do you see how the saint is directed to live in light of the truth that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness? We are to live in the righteousness of God that is faith through faith. 
one more section of Scripture, Philippians 2, 12-16. God once again gives us this separator between those that are no longer under God and the wrath of God <clears throat> and the wrath of God and the earth dwellers who are. It begins, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to boast, because I did not run in vain nor labor in vain. So did you hear once again in those verses how we the redeemed, the ones who are no longer under the wrath of God, live, live with those, that are still under the wrath, we're told to do all things without grumbling or disputing, verse 14, so that you will be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. You see, God has given us a flannel gram, if you were, to help in understanding the symbolism and intent of what is told to us in chapter 16 of Revelation. He has purposely designed this chapter, chapter 16 of Revelation, spoken of these spiritual plagues and the way that he does in order that we will think, in order that we will actually look on the plagues of the Exodus and think. To understand that that happened, those plagues and the wrath of God on Egypt, that happened to give us a physical understanding of what is happening in the spiritual realm. What is being told to us in our chapter today? What is presently occurring in this realm? And this is one reason why we can't unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, as some of us would love to tell us what we should. We are meant to, as we read these verses from today, as these bowls, or we are told of these bowls being poured out, we are supposed to think back to the plagues of Egypt, the intent behind them, and even the effect of them, and then apply those two things, intent and effect, on the earth dwellers that we are living alongside of at the present time. God poured out his divine wrath on that sole superpower of Egypt, the one that denied him and worshiped in his stead creatures, primarily themselves and then other created things, such as the sun, the river, the Nile, even frogs and cows, while at the same time preserving his people. Those people had to live in that world but they were not of that world. And nothing that happens in this realm is chance. Nothing that happens is an accident. And none of it is outside of the direct control and will of God. It is not something that Satan is doing. Even when Satan is doing it. Because it's all still part of the will of God that is bound up in the wrath of God, which is directly linked with the righteousness of God as revealed to us in Romans 1, 17 and 18. We need to understand the dichotomy of this truth. We live in a world that is under the wrath of God, even though we, as sons of God, are no longer under the wrath of God. We still live in this realm that is, though. 
And we are still suffering part of the wrath of God because we are still dying physically, which is the first death. But how is our life any different than theirs? How our lives are supposed to be different than theirs can be seen in what verse 2 is pointing at in Revelation 16. And here's where that flannel gram of the Exodus plagues can begin to help us understand what is being shown to us. The first plague of chapter 16 is spoken of in the sixth plague of the Exodus account, given to us in Exodus 9, 8 through 12. That sixth plague of Exodus, it should have been evident on the people of, of Egypt that they were being treated differently than the Hebrews were. And this is where we're supposed to take those plagues of Egypt and line them alongside of the plagues of our chapter today to get an understanding of what the wrath of God on the sons of Satan looks like in our day. You see, the Egyptians were a very proud people, and their primary god was themselves in the form of Pharaoh. He was, after all, a living god that was created in their image. And it was this that God <clears throat> this, this, this that God, their God, that we in our culture still has as our primary God. We love ourselves and we worship ourselves just as the Egyptians did. Great amounts of time and care was given towards their outward appearance of the Egyptians. How they looked. Their hair was done just so. Their clothes were fashionable, stylish rather than practical. And God poured out his wrath on them, attacking this very thing in these boils. The wrath of God is now being poured out on the earth dwellers who are heavily influenced by how they look, the styles that they wear. They are deluded into believing that this is of great importance in their life. And the wrath of God is being poured on them now, creating with them loathsome sores and malignant sores now. How so? Oh, they hate that despite their best efforts, they can't stop the wrath of God and the destruction of their most precious God themselves. No matter what they do, no matter how much money they spend on their efforts to look younger, look healthier, as if they are not aging and dying, there is nothing that they can do about it. God's judgment is on them. And we, like them, are aging and are moving toward the same death as they are. But we are not moving toward the same end as they are. And that, that should matter. And it should affect how we live now and where our focus is at as we walk alongside of them. How do we live alongside of them? Because how we live alongside of them, how we are protected from the plagues of God on them, can further be seen in what the second and the third plagues of chapter 16 point to. Verses 3-4 through four correspond with the first plague of Egypt, which was when we're told the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. And then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. So here's the, the physical realm occurrence of that. Told to us in Exodus 7 verses 19-21. through 21. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams and over their, their rivers and their pools and all their reservoirs of water, that they may become blood. 
And there will be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both the vessels of wood and the vessels of stone. And so Moses and Aaron did this as Yahweh had commanded. And he raised up the staff and struck the water that was in the Nile, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood. Verse 21, And the fish that were in the Nile died, and the Nile became foul, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. And the blood was throughout all the land of Egypt. The first plague of God against the Egyptians attacked the second favorite god of the Egyptians, the Nile. You see, the Nile wasn't just a river for them. The Egyptians rightly understood that that river brought life to them. It provided wealth for them and a pleasure to them. And they worshiped the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And the wrath of God on the Egyptians destroyed their economy. It attacked the root of their social security and the affluence of their country. And this is what the second and third bold judgments of our verses from today speak about. The earth dwellers have as their minor God, after themselves, money and pleasure. They look to their 401ks as their security in times of trouble. They look to the government for their protection and provision. They look to entertainment as validation of a life well lived. So can you see how the truth of what was accomplished on the cross, the truth of where our home is because of what was accomplished is being pointed at in what the Lord is attacking in His wrath on these earth dwellers? Can you see how our lives are supposed to be different than theirs? We're supposed to be asking ourselves, where do you find your salvation in? Where do you find your hope and your security? Because our lives are supposed to be different than the unregenerate. And then we come to verses 5-7 through of Revelation 16. And they don't represent a plague. They are a pause. They are a commentary. They demonstrate the dichotomy of God, how His wrath and His love are both equal and are both worthy of praise. We read there, I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you who is and who was, O Holy One, because you judged these things. There's the wrath of God being praised. And that's one side of the reality of God. And then verse 6 speaks of the other side of God, that of the love for His children. Verse 6 of chapter 16 of Revelation. For they poured out the blood of saints and the prophets, and you, gave, you have given them blood to drink, and they deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The judgments on the sons of Satan, the earth dwellers, those that walk alongside of us in the streets of this world, they are said to be just. And God is said to be righteous and holy because He has rightly and justly poured out His wrath on these earth dwellers because they have hated those that He has created in His image. And the saints, the ones that walk alongside of the earth dwellers, they are known by the earth dwellers to be different than they are, just as the Hebrews were known by the Egyptians to be different. Think about that. Because for us in this realm, it's not ethnicity that reveals our separation from the world. It's our value system based off of whose we are 
not who we are. The slaves of God are hated for having a different value system that the sons of Satan do. And their lives prove that this is true. And they are hated and persecuted for living differently, for having a different set of of values than the earth dwellers do. They live as Christ did, and they love what he did. And the earth dwellers hate them for it. And again, how influenced are we by the spirit of this age? The spirit that finds peace in the false god of self. Those that will do anything, spend any amount of money trying to look young, dyeing their hairs, getting face implants, butt implants, anything to try to stay alive. They find their security in retirement and in financial affluence. And they find their peace and their joy not in Christ, but in entertainment and in ease of life. And we are told once again how the Lord is pouring out His wrath on them currently in the fourth plague, beginning in verse 8. The fourth angel poured out His bowl upon the sun, and it was given it to scorch men with fire. In the seventh plague of Exodus, that was directed at the sun as well. Only there it was demonstrated to the Egyptians once again that God was sovereign over them and their false gods. In Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 through 23, we're told of the wrath of God being directed at the sun, but there it is darkness that comes on them. And the reason for that is because they believed that that false god, the god of the sun, was at the strongest day, had the strongest power at noonday, which is why it became black. And as with the other Exodus plagues spoken of in this chapter, the children of God weren't affected by these plagues. And just as real as the darkness was for these Egyptians, as that fourth plague is, that is said to scorch men with fire on the earth dwellers now, of Revelation 16. Verse 9 is evidence of this, and then speaks to what the current wrath of God is on the earth dwellers. Verse 9 of Revelation 16. And the men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who had the authority over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give glory to Him. In our realm, the Lord is doing the same thing to the false gods that the earth dwellers have now as He did to the Egyptians then. And fire of God, the fire that is spoken of in verse 9, is always likened within the Bible to idolatry, such as in Jeremiah 7.20, where we're told, Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, my anger, my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man and beast, and on the trees of the field, and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. God is pouring out His wrath on the earth dwellers now as He demonstrates to them the futility of their lives by destroying the very things that they worship, themselves and the economy. Oh, they can't stop death from happening. 
They're trying to get themselves out from under that wrath of God, but they will never be able to. And they cannot stop the effects of their sin on the temple of their God, which is their body. And as much as they idolize themselves, there is another false god that they worship as well. And that is money. And as much as they worship money, God is destroying their economy. The question that we need to ask ourselves is this. When the economy turns south, you're going to know exactly where you place your trust in. We should be asking ourselves, where do we place our trust in now? Is it God or money? And you will know precisely where that trust is by how you are affected when the economy turns south. Does our life reflect the values and the goals of the one who is pouring out his wrath on the earth dwellers at this moment? Ask yourself this, are you willing to forego a solid and robust retirement nest egg to help support and equip those that are risking their lives to preach the truth of God in a dangerous place? And this brings us to the fifth plague in this chapter. And here God demonstrates his sovereign control over all creation once again. Up until now, all of these plagues, they were all the all these wraths were directed at those that had taken the mark of the beast. But in the fifth bowl, this is different. We're, we're told in verse 10 of chapter 16 of Revelation, Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. This plague, if you're keeping track, is the opposite side of the same coin of that fourth plague. They're both represented in the ninth plague of Exodus. But the fifth plague is unlike the four, the first four, in that it's not directed at people, but it's directed at the source of their false god. The throne of the beast and his entire kingdom is cast into utter darkness. And what is the effect of that happening? It, it causes severe pain on the earth dwellers who prove whose they are by what is said that they do in verse 11 of chapter 16. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. But what does verse 11 actually mean? What are we supposed to be getting from it? We're going to start first with their deeds that they don't repent of. What deeds are being spoken of in verse 11? It's the same deeds that are spoken of in Revelation 9.21. They didn't repent of their murders, nor their sorceries, nor their sexual immorality, nor their theft. Murder is chief on that list. And we in America, we don't think that murder is an issue for us even though there's going to be more than 600,000 legal murders in this country alone this year that we call abortion instead of murder. And why are there 600,000 abortions, murders in this, this year? Because they won't repent of their sexual immorality. And what is sorceries? The Greek word that is used there is pharmakia, where we get our word pharmacy. And in this context, it's speaking of the illicit use of drugs to alter reality. Something that we should never be part of. And then the last sin that they don't repent of is thefts. And we think little of this because we don't see the root cause for theft. 
They steal to appease the God of self and to get their God money. So now we can think through what is meant when we are told that they blaspheme the God of heaven and how it relates to us. And Revelation 9 verse 20 is actually telling us what the blasphemy that is mentioned in verse 11 is. There we're told the rest of mankind who weren't killed by these plagues did not repent of their hands or the works of their hands so as to not worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and of brass and of stone which can neither see nor, see nor hear nor walk. So there we're given a huge clue as to what God is talking about by the things that are said after that word because in verse 11 of chapter 9, of chapter, um, Nine. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they didn't repent of their deeds. So because there is given to us to tell us what is the motivation behind the blasphemy that they continue in on. First, we need to understand and have a good working definition of what blasphemy is. What is blasphemy? It's an insult that shows contempt or disrespect or lack of reverence concerning God. It's attributing evil to God or attributing God to evil. And we're supposed to think here. What is it that these earth dwellers are, are doing and insulting and showing contempt towards and disrespecting and having a lack towards or reverence towards God for? It's their pains and their sores. What are they doing here? What specifically is being spoken about here? It's the state of their heart that proves whose they are. They're whining, they're complaining. And as much as they worship themselves, money, pleasure, ease of life, their false gods can never bring contentment to their lives, and so they whine. And we are meant to understand that contentment in God is the fruit of the Spirit, one that must be cultivated, one that Thomas Watson understood very well when he said that Satan loves to fish in the water of a discontent heart. How often do we go along with the spirit of the age that loves to whine and grumble and complain? We've become professionals at it. And this is sin. Think about what we whine and grumble over. It's too hot. It's too cold. Or we grumble because we're not getting our way. Because we actually think that we deserve better. We whine and grumble because our actions have brought about negative results in our life. We grumble and we whine just about everything. And we need to stop and realize what we're doing when we allow ourselves to participate in the blaspheming of God by grumbling and whining. The Word of God clearly tells us who it is that are doing these things. All of these things in our lives. Who it is that is responsible for all the things that we are whining about. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory, not the whining, 
forever. Amen. Romans 11.36 And then we're told how we are to act because of the wrath of God is no longer being poured out on us. How we are supposed to act. How we're supposed to act now in the midst of a God-hating world. Even though we are suffering. Even though that we are having pain in our lives. We are told there in Romans 11, verse 17, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Excuse me, that was 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18. And this doesn't mean that you're supposed to live a lie, because life is hard. That's why Christ could tell you that this world, you will have tribulation. Tribulation isn't fun. That's why Christ called it tribulation and not fun. But how we view tribulation, how we process it, now, what we think about it, that's the thing that will prove whose we are. You see, before promising that we will have tribulation, Christ first tells us how we can and why we should live differently than those, than those that remain under His wrath do. He said, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. We, who are no longer under the wrath of God, and that is the thing, that is the thing, that he said before telling us that in the world we have tribulation, we are no longer under that wrath. We have peace. But then he told us how we demonstrate that we have peace and that we no longer are under the wrath or in the just condemnation of God. He said to take courage because I've overcome the world. We are meant to take courage Take it from where? Take it from whom? Where are, supposed to, where are we supposed to find this stash of courage at? Well, we take it from the one that gave us peace. We find that stash of courage in Him. Our lives are supposed to have a marked difference than these earth dwellers. Even though we live in similar houses as they do, drive similar cars, and even eat at similar places, we are meant to live with the eternal truth that we have been recreated by God and no longer under His wrath. And we are supposed to live by faith. We are meant to think before we go along with them in whining and in grumbling and murmuring and complaining. We are meant to trust in God and to be thankful in all situations. What does that mean, all situations? Think Job here. So I'm going to end with once again reminding you of the blessed hope that you have been given and why and how we live differently than those that have no hope, those that remain under the wrath of God. I'm going to read to you Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And this is the telling of the recreation of, of being made in the image of God. This is of more value than all of the billions of dollars that these earth dwellers are striving after. We have been restored and now have perfect communion with God as told to us in verse 2. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we hope, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We aren't meant to complain. We're meant to boast, not to whine. Well, we're not supposed to lie. We just value. We have a different value system than the earth dwellers do. And we value something that they cannot. And for this reason, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Something that verses 3 through 5 tells us of, that confirms as they tell us of the benefit of the tribulation that we now face and the benefit of boasting in them. We're told not only this, not only do we hope in the, and boast in the, um, the glory of God, but we boast in our affliction. Why? Knowing that affliction brings about perseverance. Perseverance brings about proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not put to shame. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Saints, this is how we're meant to live in this crooked and evil generation that is under the wrath of God. And I pray that each of us will consider this truth. That we, holy brothers, partakers of a heavenly calling, that we will consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus the Christ. Let's pray.